Well, good evening again, Redeemer. It's good to be with you. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. We're continuing through the uh, I am sayings of Jesus. And um, I always learn more um, as you dig into God's word than I did before I approached the passage. And so um, initially my focus was around, man, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd and I will lay down my life for the sheep. And so that's a frame, it's a prism to help us understand what is happening on Good Friday, that the sheep um, has a shepherd who will do whatever it takes to save them, even if it means dying. And as I got into the passage, uh, there's so much more here, and so I pray that I can be faithful to what's in front of us. We're going to read John 10, and I'll, I'll read 10 through 18. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his life down, lays down his life for his sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and he leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. But I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I will lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I laid down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Amen, let's pray. Uh, Jesus, we uh, thank you that we can um, ponder your words. Father, we thank you that um, you have given them, you have carried men along by your spirit to leave this beautiful uh, testimony of King Jesus. Uh, Father, I pray that as we turn our hearts towards your word, that you will make us listeners and hearers, not just with our ears, Lord, but with our hearts. Help us, Lord, to see the glory and the beauty and the dignity and the worth and the majesty of King Jesus. Father, we will be pleased to leave here having seen you and having seen your plan of redemption carried out in your son. We will be pleased, Lord, to leave here seeing and knowing and loving Jesus more. Do this work, uh, we pray, Holy Spirit, in the name of the Son, amen. So about a year ago, uh, we went down to, to New Orleans for an anniversary trip, and uh, we visited the World War II Museum. And the museum at the time was debuting a new form of learning, and it was called Dimensions in Testimony. And you can go check it out uh, if you'd like, but you, you walk into this large room, and there's this massive screen, and in front of the screen, there's a microphone, and, and as you walk up to the microphone, a, a man appears on the screen. 
and his name was Alan Moskin. He was a soldier who fought in World War II, but this is his interactive biography. And so you walk up to the microphone and you can ask Alan a host of questions. Where are you from? Why did you enlist in World War II? How far was the journey? What was it like to free people from concentration camps? And after you ask each question, the man on the screen, like he, he looks at where you are and he begins to answer all of these questions. It's interactive history. And it, it, it's a trend that's kind of catching on. And, and the way that they were able to do this is they went to him and they spent five days interviewing him, asking him one thousand questions and so that when you show up in the museum and ask him a question the software that's running all of it is pinging what you're asking him and matching it to his response and it's interactive it's catching on imagine being here today and wanting to leave your great great grandchildren not just photos and not just letters but imagine leaving them interactive history imagine someone coming and sitting in your living room and recording you 1000 questions so that three generations from now your great great grandchildren can see you and can interact with you and can ask you anything and the real you actually responds. I know you're thinking, what does that have to do with our passage? In a sense, that's what's happening here in this passage. I want you to think about having Jesus in a chair and asking Jesus this question. Where'd you come from? He's going to look at you and say, I came from my father. And you ask Jesus another question. Well, who are you? He's going to say, I am the good shepherd. And then you ask Jesus, why did you come? Why did you come from the right hand of the Father? Why did you leave glory? And why did you come down to the earth? And you know what Jesus would do? Jesus would say this right here. I came that you might have life and life to the full. You catch that? These aren't my words. These are actually Jesus's words right there in verse 10. I came where from the father that they, my sheep might have life and might have it abundantly. How often do you think about that? When I think about why Jesus came, I will admit that my view is kind of myopic and small. You came to get me to heaven when I die. You came to forgive my sins. He's done all of that, but, but Jesus' redemption is cosmic. It's bigger than that. It's more expansive than that. He's saying, I came to give you life and life to the full, overflowing, better than you can imagine, teeming with beauty and glory, far exceeding anything you could have imagined. That's why I came. 
And so Jesus is telling us that he came that we might have the abundant life. He came to cure the vertical breach in relationship. He came to mend horizontal fractures between people. He came to bring the kingdom now, but it's also in the future. He came to, have, ha, to help us have this abundant life relationally, materially, physically, financially. It's all encompassing if you ask Jesus. I've come to give you a full, overflowing, far better than you could have dreamed, more satisfying than you could have imagined, touching every aspect of your life, abundant life. Now, this is a, 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 a weird scene because this is another two for one. In John chapter 10, he tells us, I am the door. And that's kind of in verses one through nine. And then you get, I am the good shepherd. That's right there in verse 11 to the end. And verse 10 is a beautiful, you must not overlook it, transition verse. And what Jesus is saying is that I am the good shepherd. But I'm the good shepherd who came to give you the abundant life. Now, so we have an interpretive decision that we have to make here, right? Because in verse 10, Jesus says, I came to give you the abundant life. And then he starts to, he goes right into the good shepherd and all the things the shepherd's going to give us. And the question we have to make is this, is this disjointed down here? Is verses 11 through 18 disjointed? Or is Jesus himself telling us what the abundant life is? Does he say, I'm the good shepherd, I come to give you the abundant life, and then what is the abundant life, Jesus? He says, I'm glad you asked. Because here it is, it's 11 through 18. This is abundance. This is what I've come for. And so that's the way that I want to shape our sermon this morning. I, mean, this, I just did it. I said this morning, this evening. I want to talk about the price of the abundant life. I want us to think about the picture of the abundant life. And I want to talk briefly about what it means to practice the abundant life. And, and here's where I'm going. He is the good shepherd. He's going to lay down his life for the sheep. But it's for abundance. Now, I don't think it's ironic that Jesus speaks about the abundant life in verse 10 and he goes straight into, I am the good shepherd. So there's a link between the shepherd wanting to give the sheep abundance. And then notice right after that, he announces that he's the good shepherd. The first thing he says is what? I'm going to lay down my life for the sheep. You see what he's getting at? He's actually saying abundance it's going to be costly. There's a price that he's going to have to pay for it. And we'll unpack what it is. But the first thing Jesus wants you to see is that it's costly. It isn't free. It isn't automatic. That someone is going to have to take their own resources and secure it for us. Apart from his grace and his generosity, our lives will be scarce and so here is what Jesus is saying by saying, I am the good shepherd. 
He is not a good shepherd. He is the good shepherd. And his audience would have known exactly what Jesus was claiming. They would have known about Ezekiel 34 and about Ezekiel 37. They would have known about Israel's rebellion and being carried out into Babylon. They would have known about their waywardness and their idolatry, not just with the sheep, but with the shepherds. They would have known that the shepherds themselves had grown fat and were corrupt and preyed on the sheep and did not protect the sheep. And so that this, this reason that they were carried into exile was poor leadership and it was poor followership. That is how they ended up in Babylon. Babylon, and then God prophesied to them through Ezekiel that a day is coming. A day is coming. I promise you a day is coming. There is someone that's going to be born of the lineage of David. He is coming and he will gather you from out of, uh, out of Babylon. And he will bring you back into Jerusalem. He will bring all of you back from the dark places and you will be under his rulership. They knew what Jesus was claiming. He was claiming to be the one that Ezekiel told them would come. Well, how do we know? How would we know to recognize this good prophesied promised shepherd from all the false sheep? Because in the context of this, this is an indictment amongst the, the false shepherds of Israel at the time. And Jesus is saying, I'm the good shepherd and y'all are done. You do not care about the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. And this is how you know I'm the good shepherd. It's because I won't run away when the wolf comes. I will run towards the wolf. I won't make decisions for my own comfort. I will think about the sheep. I will lay down my sheep in order to give them the full life that they long for. And Jesus says, I lay down my life in verse 11, verse 15, verse 17, and twice in verse 18. And so Good Friday is inextricably linked to this right here. He's telling us, I'm going to lay down my life. I'm going to pay the price to give you the abundant life. And I think it's tempting to think that Jesus is only talking about the cross here. He is, but I think it's more. I think he's saying equality with God was something that he could have held on to, but he didn't. He became human. Staying in eternity with his father in spirit, he could have held on to, but he wouldn't. He humbled himself and was found in the likeness of men, staying in the exalted place over creation, wherever God is right now in heaven, where there is no sin, there is no rebellion, there is no corruption, where everything is beautiful and everything is holy. He could have stayed right there, but he says, I won't. I will enter into time and space. He says, I could have beheld the things that your heart longs to see, that your mind cannot comprehend. I could have held on to that, but I didn't. I could have come to earth and showcased my glory, but I veiled it and only used it when it was needed. I could have shut the mouth of those who falsely accused me, and I could have set them straight, but I did not. I let them levy against me false charges because I was taking your iniquity and your sin. I was letting it be piled upon me, but I could have defended my own name. He says, I could have summoned legions of angels, and they would come 
but my kingdom is not of this world. That when Jesus talks about laying down his life, he's not just talking about the act on Calvary. He's talking about my heart. I am meek and lowly at heart all the time. Before eternity, when the Father told me, you will have to become like them to save them. Yes, sir, Daddy, I'll do it. You just tell me when. You will have to be born. You will have to breathe. You will have to get tired. You will have to get sleep. Yes, sir, Daddy, I will do it. Jesus so worked that muscle of humility that he did it over and over and over and over and over and over again so that when the grand sacrifice of laying down his life was required, he already has a history going back into eternity for living lowly and meek in heart before the Father. And this Jesus is not like the false prophets. He says, when the wolf comes, I will not run from the wolf. I will not leave the sheep. I will go out and I will fight the wolf. And this is metaphor, so you got to be careful about stretching metaphor too much. What is the wolf? I don't know. Anything that will harm the sheep. Is it Satan? Yep. Justice of God? Yep. Sin, flesh, the devil? Yep. Anything that will harm the sheep? Jesus says, I will not run away. I will go towards it. And I will die so that my sheep can live. So, in the Arctic Circle, Eskimos have a peculiar way of hunting wolf. They need the wolf because they need their fur. They, they wear it. They put it in their comforters. But wolves are much bigger than dogs around here, right? And they are dangerous. And so what the Eskimos do, from what I hear, is they trap a seal. Much easier to get, not a threat, and they kill the seal. And then they take their knives and they sharpen and they sharpen and they sharpen and they sharpen. And then they dip the blood, the, the, the knife inside the seal to coat the knife with blood. And they set it outside and let that layer freeze onto the knife. And then they go and do it again. And they do it again. And they do it again. And they do it again until the entire knife blade is hidden. Then they take the knives and they put them where the wolves live. And they put them in the ground, the base in the ground, and they leave the, the edge of the knife pointing up. Wolves 
with a keen sense of smell detect seal blood. And so they come to the knife and they lick the blood of the seal. And they keep licking and keep licking and keep licking until all the blood of the seal is gone. And now they're devouring their own blood. And they keep eating and they keep eating and they keep eating. Either they die right there or they so fracture and cut open their mouths that they can't hunt. And the next day, the Eskimos go to where they put their knives and they got a dead wolf. His insatiable appetite for blood. His insatiable appetite for blood is on this knife. And he keeps coming and coming and coming and coming until the wolf is the one who actually dies. You see, I think that's a helpful way to think about the cross. Satan has an insatiable appetite for evil. Did you notice that it's Satan who gets into Judas? It's Satan who is reckless with his evil. It's Satan who is relentless. And here's the thing that God is doing through the cross. God is saying, your reckless abandon for evil, you're actually playing into my hand. I am going to use you, Satan, you the demonic, and you the forces of evil to carry out my good. My justice will be satisfied. And guess what? You are are going to help me do it and now you can no longer harm my people you can't eat them anymore because you have been slaughtered by the lamb that you ate when Jesus says I will go towards the wolf I will lay down my life I will satisfy justice I will render righteousness I will do battle against darkness and death and the grave and Satan. And when Satan gets done with me, he has no teeth to come and harm you. I will do anything to get in the way to protect my sheep. This is what Good Friday is about. It's about Jesus dying so that you and I don't have to. It's about Jesus laying down his life. It's about the inscrutable wisdom of God that is higher than anything we can imagine, working out his plan of redemption and even using evil to do it. Abundance is costly, says Jesus, and he will lay down his life to give it to us. Which moves us to the second point, a picture of abundance. Now, one of our interpretive principles for the I am sayings was Jesus will often say, I am something, and then he'll tell you who you are. He says, I am the good shepherd, and you are the sheep. Verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, verse 7, verse 8, verse 10, verse 11, verse 12, verse 15, verse 16. Make no mistake about it. He's the shepherd, we're the sheep. 
And the Bible does this everywhere. Isaiah 53, Ezekiel 34, Ezekiel 37, Psalm 100, 1 Peter 5, Luke 15, Psalm 78, Matthew 9, 36. They were like sheep without a shepherd. And this flies in the face of humanity, doesn't it? We don't want to be called sheep. What professional team would name their mascot the L.A. Lambs? or the Seattle sheep, you would not go see them play. Why? Because we name teams after predators. Atlanta Hawks, Atlanta Falcons, Philadelphia Eagles, Chicago Bears, Carolina Panthers, Detroit Lions, Baltimore Ravens. We don't like to identify with weakness and need and vulnerability. We want to be strong. We want to be fearless. We want to be tough. We want to identify with tough things, except that's not what the Bible says about you and I. We're like sheep, and we go astray, each of us in our own ways. We get lost. We meander from the fold. We can be stubborn. We're not strong but we're tailor-made for a good shepherd. And that's the point. He's the good shepherd. He is tailor-made for weak sheep. And that's what he's saying. I'm the good shepherd. You're the sheep. And be okay with that. But good, I mean, sheep need a shepherd who can lead them to abundance and not scarcity. What would abundance look like for sheep? because I want to be careful not to import our understanding of abundance onto the passage and just ask the question, what would abundance look like to Fido, right? Or whoever you want to, just imaginary sheep. What would abundance look like to him or her? Safety. Just keep me safe. Protection. Just protect me from predators. Pasture and provision. Just, just lead me to somewhere I can graze. I need to know the shepherd. I need you near me. I need you to know my name. And when you don't hear my bad, whatever sheep say in the crowd, that you know that I'm not there so that you can come find me. I need to know you, and I need you to know me. And I need other sheep. I can't be out here alone. I won't make it. Those four basic things is what a sheep with abundance is. And it should not surprise you that this is exactly what Jesus says he gives. Did you notice verses 11 and through 13? I'm the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I will lay down my life. I'm not a hired hand. I love the sheep. They run when the wolf comes. I don't run from it. I'll run to it. In other words, Jesus' accomplishment on the cross secures this safety for his people. He's going to lay down his life 
but he's going to raise it back up again. We'll see that at the end of our passage. No one takes it from me. I lay it down. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. And so what this means is, is that Jesus was not just the good shepherd, but he is the good shepherd. Right now, he's alive and he still goes to battle for you. He still goes in front of you when wolves come and he still guards you. He still intercedes for you before the Father right now. That he lives right now to protect you and to pray for you. He protects you supernaturally from threats that you see and don't see. He protects you physically. He puts under shepherds over you to keep a watch for your soul. The abundant life that Jesus gives involves safety, body and soul, now and forever, not because Christ is alive right now. Sin, death, the grave, Satan, things unseen, things seen, things present, things to come, they have all been put in check by your good shepherd. You are safe. And the shepherd promises you that you don't have to worry about daily provision. Look at verse 9. He talks about the sheep will go in and out and find pasture. I think he's picking up on Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. The sheep are herbivores. They're, they're plant-eating animals. And if you let them, they will graze an entire paddock in a day. And so good shepherds have learned what they call MERG, Manage Intensive Rotational Grazing. That's a fancy saying for this right here. A good shepherd will not let dumb sheep graze in one, one place for a whole week. A good shepherd is going to scout out grazing land, and he's going to have seven or eight different smaller pastures that they can graze out of. And so on day one, you go to pasture number one. On day two, you can't stay in pasture one. You got to go out that door and you got to go to another pasture and you go to a pasture two. Day three, you go to pasture three. Now, while you're grazing in pasture three or pasture four, pastures one, two and three are being renewed. If you let sheep stay in one place, they will eat the tops and the roots and they come back the next day. They have nothing. And so what a good shepherd does I'm going to give you enough for today and I'm going to take you somewhere else tomorrow and somewhere else the next day and the next day I'm going to give you your daily provision. Doesn't Jesus say, do not worry about your life, what you eat or drink or wear? Doesn't he say, look at the birds of the heavens? Look at the lilies of the field. If your father feeds the birds and clothes the flowers and feeds the grass, he says, do you not know that you're more valuable to the father than any of those created things? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to seek the kingdom of God and my righteousness, and you let me be your good shepherd. I will make sure you have what you need today and tomorrow, 
and the next day and the next day. If you import your idea of abundance means that you have to have a stockpile of money and a stockpile of houses and a stockpile of everything that lasts you forever, you are missing out on the abundance life. The abundant life is you have an abundant shepherd and he will meet all of your needs today and then tomorrow and then the next day and the next day. That is abundance. And Jesus says, I got it for you. It's knowledge on the deepest level. Did you catch what he says? Look at verse 14. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me. And I know the father. You, that's rare, y'all. For Jesus to say, I know my sheep, my sheep know me, like the Father knows me, and I know the Father. Whoa. That makes sense, right? He knows you by name. He knows the number of hairs on your heads. He knows your stories and your struggles and your fears and your anxieties. He knows you intimately and deeply. Now, how could Jesus say this? How could he use the Father and their knowledge with each other as, as, as a picture of how we can know him and he knows us? On the one hand, he knows the Father because he's been with the Father forever. They're equal in substance and glory and power and deity. But on the other hand, what happened to Jesus when he left the right hand of the Father? Did he not take on flesh? Did he not put on skin? Was he not a teenager who went through puberty? Does he not know what it's like to fear death? Does he not know what it's like to be hungry? Does he not know what it's like to be tempted in every way, yet without sin? You see, when Jesus talks about knowing you, he's not just talking about this pie in the sky knowing. He has become like you so that in every way he empathizes with us. He sympathizes with us. He knows you intimately, Redeemer. And you know him. Because he is a revealing himself type of God where we can see his heart, his character, his longings, his truth, his wisdom, his beauty right here in the word. And what Jesus is saying is, you know me. I'm not out to hide myself from you. I want to fully show you who I am. And I know you because I became like you and you can come to me. That's abundant life. When your God knows you and you're known by him. And then community. Did you catch in verse 16? He says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice and there will be one flock. And that's the word you underline. Yes, Jesus loves you intimately. Yes, he gave himself for you. Galatians 2 but he saved you into a flock of we together, family, not doing life by yourself, 
not bearing burdens by yourself, not trying to grow in grace by yourself, not trying to pursue holiness by yourself, not trying to memorize scripture by yourself, not trying to break entangling sins by yourself, but he's bringing you into a community of other dependent sheep, into a flock where you can know and be known, not just by God, but by others. But then notice what Jesus says. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. What is that about? His audience is the Jews. Look at verse 19. There was a division among the Jews because of his words. I wonder what words set him off. What words set the Jews off? I think it's right there. He said, they, they track it with him up there. Yeah, Jesus, you good. We good there. We good. And then he says, but I have other sheep that are not of this fold and they're going to hear my voice and they're going to come. All right, now I got a problem. What is Jesus talking about? Who is he talking about? He's talking about Gentiles. And you see this in the formation of the church that the Jews did not know what to do when the other folk came in. Y'all got to be like us. You got to eat our food. You got to dress like us. You got to worship like us. You got to talk like us. You got to do everything like us. And the early church is wrestling through this. No, you don't. What we have in common is Jesus. But in, in Paul, did you hear Paul's prayers? His prayers were in line with this passage that so much division is happening in our world that we're forgetting that the goal of Jesus is to take people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every culture, and to bring us together as we bow the knee before him. And this is what Jesus is saying. Not only is community good, and that's abundant living, but diverse community is good. And that's abundant living. The new normal of the multi-ethnic church in the New Testament moves the center of our focus to Jesus Christ and finding our identity in him. And this helps us all avoid cultural idolatry People's Jewishness was not to be the center of their identity. People's Egyptianness, their Libyanness, their Arabianness, their whiteness, their blackness was not to be the center of their identity. The Spirit of God worked to press the people of God into the new normal of having Jesus Christ at the center of their identity. God alone has wisdom, power, and grace to weave the tangled threads of different people and different cultures and customs and languages into a seamless tapestry of glorious beauty. The Spirit does not remove our diversity. Rather, He enables us to love, hear, seek, understand, and pursue one another in it. With the Holy Spirit, we hear and understand Without him, we misunderstand through fear, distrust, and selfish ambition. Unity cannot be engineered. It's a matter of the spirit. That's Erwin Entz from Beautiful Community.
The abundant life then is when our differences, gender and gifts, personalities, strength, weakness, wisdom, maturity can be brought to bear not to make people copies of you, but allowing each one of us led by the Spirit to be the most sanctified versions of our diverse selves following Jesus together. That's me. It is our diversity under unity, our love in our God-given differences. It's our learning and repenting and appreciating and partaking of what diverse bodies bring to the table. That is abundance. I think what Jesus means when he says he's come to give us life, life to the full, he says, I want you safe and you are safe in me. All of your needs will be provided. Do not be anxious about them. You're reconciled to God through the cross. You are indwelled by my spirit. You're known by God. And you know him. You're walking together, unified in your diversity. When Jesus died on the cross, it wasn't just to pay penalty for your sins. It was cosmic. It was all of this. And he gives it to you. And he says, I will pay the price. Last point, and it's really quick. How do we practice this abundant life? I think we all have to come to this. I know I do. Because when I think of abundance, my mind goes in places that ain't godly. It goes to greed and storing up treasures, hating suffering, hating discipline. That's not abundant living. This is abundance. I think for some of us, it's possible to have it. And this is where I've had to repent as well. I have the abundant life. I know Jesus. And he knows me. I'm in community. He supplies all of our needs. We lack no good thing. Why is it that we don't always feel like it's abundant? It's because we covet. It's because we're entitled. It's because we compare. And what this passage invites all of us to do is to just say, stop. Take a survey of my goodness. You have the abundant life. Haven't I given it to you? And for some, you are your own shepherd. And you are out there striving. And you haven't bowed the knee. And you're living by yourself. And you wake up every day and it's up for you to make it happen. And you were one breath from hell apart from Jesus. And what Jesus calls you to do, stop. Hear my voice. 
and come to me. May that be so. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you forgive us for the ways in which we don't see the abundance that is ours. Father, I pray for those who don't know you and who are chasing meaning and satisfaction and dignity and worth in all the wrong places. I pray that they would hear that you are the good shepherd. You will run into the battle and you will pay the price to deliver them from bondage. Father, I pray that as we depart this place after we sing a few songs, that you will uh, remind us again of your goodness to us in Jesus. Your redemption is cosmic. May we see it and marvel at it for Jesus' sake. Amen.